ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Dispatch and Dispatch Media. That's thunder in the background. If you hadn't guessed, I tried to record a podcast earlier and my computer crashed. And anyway, so I'm going to try and keep this short and sweet in part because I also have no idea what to talk about. So why don't I just sort of start with what I wrote about in the G file on Wednesday. And I still have to, it's one o'clock and I still have to write today's G file and I haven't even started. So I'm behind the eight ball. So I saw this. I like The Economist. I think it's a good magazine. I disagree with its coverage on some things. I think I listen to a lot of economist podcasts. I think the intelligence is really good. Um, I think Drum Tower is really useful. Drum Tower is all about what's going on in China. I'm not the biggest fan of the Checks and Balances or Checks and Balance podcast, about, which is about America. Anyway, it's one of the few you know magazines that I'm sort of happy to pay the money to subscribe to because I get a lot out of it. But sometimes they are just off. And I saw this thing. Um, it was a little write-up of about the movie Soylent Green, which I've always really liked. I was really into it when I was a little kid. It scared me. I thought it was interesting. I've been shocked to discover that a bunch of people hadn't heard of it. I would have thought they would at least have seen the fantastic Saturday Night Live um, send-up of it where they have the, the sequel. They have Charlton Heston coming out going, you know, in the... Soylent Green is people from the first one. And then it's Soylent Green is still people. Um, but uh, um, I, uh, anyway, so there's this write up about it. And, you know, which it came out, it, it came out um, 50 years ago. And um, it was supposed to be set in the year 2022. The Economist, particularly the tweet, which I, is how I first saw it, Economist was promoting it the movie as eerily accurate or eerily prophetic about what the future was going to be like. I just think that was just, just gobsmacking nonsense. I mean, for those of you who don't know, spoiler alert, you know, Soylent Green was a movie that played into fear of overpopulation. It was based on a book called Make Room, Make Room. Like it's set in 2022 where, you know, the, the government is essentially failing. Everything's run by cabals of oligarch type people. Even the most basic foods like apples or, um, you know, tomatoes are considered exorbitant luxuries. Um, people, you know, don't eat meat anymore. They mostly eat these weird protein crackers. New York city is a population of 40 million people and like half of them are unemployed and, and, you know, everyone is sleeping in hallways and crowded into every nook and cranny of life. The economist says this is, you know, like, man, Hollywood nailed it. And it just, it just didn't leading with the fact that like the, the whole point is first of all, that overpopulation, you know, is this huge drain on resources. The last 50 years have proved that's actually just not true. We went through the whole peak oil craze. There's no peak oil. You know, we can walk through the, the famous, famous Paul Ehrlich, Julian Simon bet about commodity prices. America and the world have gotten richer and more prosperous. Uh, there's more food. Um, countries and governments and policymakers are all more worried about um, declining birth rates than they are about overpopulation. 
uh, we're on course in the next, I think it's 15, 20 years to start seeing major declines in global population. Um, and I, I suspect that we're going to hit it sooner than people think that premise about the movie is wrong. And so is like this major dramatic part of it, which is that resources have been cut out, have been so depleted that humanity has been forced to um, eat people. And the way they kill people in to eat them in soil and green is they, at least part of the way they do it is life is so miserable and terrible that people show up at these massive euthanasia clinics where they get to watch some music, watch some videos with some nice classical music about deer running around in the fields. And then they're put to sleep and then they're turned into crackers. Um, and like how you can watch this movie and say, man, it was just so prophetic um, is just beyond me. But it turns out a lot of people have written the same piece. I think it really is a, just a fascinating Rorschach test about how people see the world that they live in. Because if you can watch a movie like Soylent Green and say, wow, it's just like today, um, or this is what, you know, the next 10 years are going to look like or whatever, then you are just, you're, you're seeing the world through a prism that is, that explains why you might think Greta Thunberg is a really important and vital character or why you might think it's essential that we, you know, that activists throw paint on paintings and stop traffic and all this kind of stuff. And um, I'm not saying that climate change isn't a problem, but first of all, Soling Green wasn't about climate change. I know there, it's hot then, um, but it wasn't, that wasn't the reason why summer lasted all year long and summer doesn't last all year long now. And it's not going to at any point in our future, you know, um, in all likelihood, um, but I th just think there's a there's a there's a apocalyptic dystopian mindset that is really one of the big conflict, as Thomas Sowell might put it, one of the big conflicts of visions in contemporary life. Um, and uh, and I don't get it. I mean, I I, mean, I I get that it exists. I just don't. You know it it. it seeing the world that way must be so depressing and dispiriting and exhausting. And yet clearly a lot of people do. Um, and I think that this is sort of one of the things that is very hard to explain to people who are apocalyptic on the left or on the right, because there are a lot of apocalyptic people on the right these days too, is that, is that, doomsdayism isn't constructive. Um, catastrophization isn't constructive. I get into this argument every now and then on Twitter with people because I just cannot stand the way Reuters and the New York Times and a lot of major outlets, they cover Greta Thunberg as if she's a real newsmaker, like a policymaker, like someone whose opinion really matters, right? And to me, she's sort of like the human incarnation of a pseudo event. Uh, Daniel Borston, um, one of my favorite historians and intellectuals, uh, he coined the term pseudo event a long time ago. And um, the basic definition of a pseudo event is a manufactured planned event, like a press conference that is not tied 
to any real world happenings, but presents itself as if it is own, as, as if its own newsworthiness is self-evident. I recently wrote about, uh, not too recently, but a while back, a couple months ago, I guess, I don't remember. I wrote about the, the doomsday clock from the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, which is just garbage. This is this thing that says we're seconds from midnight and midnight means extinction. And it was originally used for nuclear weapons. Um, you know, that we were this close, you know, we're seconds away, metaphorically speaking, from annihilation of all life on earth or something to that effect. And they play this game where they, they'll sort of nod and wink and say, it's a, it's, it's a metaphor, it's figurative, but they encourage all sorts of media coverage of their, you know, the, the moving of the second hand forward or backward as if scientists in labs studying things with scanners and microscopes and whatever have weighed all of the data and come to a scientific finding when really all it is, is, is a bunch of people, a bunch of think tank people. I like think tank people. I'm a think tank guy who get together and they make a guess and there's nothing scientific about it. Um, and so anyway, like the doomsday clock thing is a pseudo event type thing. It is a manufactured artificial event but the media loves to cover anything, you know, they don't care if it's pseudo. They like to cover things like their events because they got to fill copy. I mean, I get that. And it seems to me that Greta Thunberg is a pseudo event made flesh. There's no reason why anyone should care about this now historical young woman, I mean, hysterical young woman used to be a teenager when she was first popular. She's like a walking doomsday clock that, you know, shrieks, how dare you at people. And I'm not saying that her opinion is invalid. I'm just saying that, you know, it doesn't have anything like the weight of that, that is assigned to it. And whenever I make this point, we're going to hear a big thunderclap soon, I think. And I was correct. Um, whenever I point this out on Twitter, people come out of me and say, I guess you just don't care about you know, climate change, I guess you don't care that the climate, you know, about those record heat waves or don't care that the planet is dying, has a fever, yada, yada, yada. And I care about all these things. You know, I, I'm not a climate change denier. Um, I'm, you know, I could be accused of not caring about it enough. We've talked about that many, many times. But um, my my point is, is like, I don't have to like hysterical, uh, overly dramatic, theatrical, performative activists who catastrophize about everything. I don't have to be show my loyalty and support for them, even if there might be some things at the margins where I agree with them directionally about some problem. You know, it's very similar to like the people who would always say, you have to support Donald Trump um, or support Republicans as if my mental status is a sign of support and that support means something, right? And um, um, and anyway, I, we don't have to get into that again. Um, but the, the point I always make about Greta Thunberg is that she's not helping. She's not, who, who, does, who, do, who do you think is persuaded 
by, you know, like who is not concerned about climate change? Um, sorry, I just love thunder. Um, who's not persuaded by climate change? Um, who will be persuaded by Greta Thunberg shrieking at you about how you should be ashamed and how old people need to get out of the way and we need to stop using all fossil fuels immediately and all this kind of stuff. Who does that persuade? Right. I mean, the only people who invest any importance in what she says are people who already agree with her. You know, if you, if you think that you need to move public opinion on something, she's exactly the wrong kind of, you know, sort of haranguing, you know, finger wagging shrieker that, um, makes things worse. And, you know, and this is one of these things that like, you know, applies to so much of public debate and public discourse. When you phrase things like, you know, you know, many different democratic politicians have hurt the, the, the cause in fighting climate change by making crazy outlandish predictions. You know, John, I just saw a clip recently of John Kerry from like, I think 2018 or something like that talking about how in five years there'll be no Arctic ice. I don't mind, you know, people warning about melting ice and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, when you make these outsized predictions and as an idea with the idea in mind of raising awareness and raising consciousness and mobilizing action, they never seem to think about what it does to your credibility when five years goes by and none of these things have happened. Um, you know, I mean, how many times Al Gore said we only have five years to stop climate change and that, you know, we're going to lose, you know, the ice caps are going to melt or the oceans are going to rise X number of feet or all these kinds of things. And that kind of chicken littleism doesn't help um, because it gives people who want psychological permission to ignore the issue entirely. It says, well, no, they were wrong about this. They were wrong about that. They were wrong about these other things. They've been saying this stuff all the time and it never seems to happen. So why should I believe them now? I just think that so much of our politics and media is uh, self-indulgent this way. It's people saying stuff for, um, to make themselves the hero in their own stories or to make their own lives seem more dramatic. You'll see every now and then someone say, this is the worst time ever for transgender people. And some people are doing, you know, unpleasant, unkind things to transgender people. Um, and they shouldn't do that. But this is also the greatest time in, in uh, I don't know about human history, but in American history to be transgender. It's never been more accepted, more celebrated, more... Um, more rewarded culturally than it is at this moment. But I think part of the appeal of one of the reasons why it gets that kind of positive attention is that people want to cast themselves as the modern day equivalent of, you know, I don't know, freedom writers and civil rights activists. And they want to be, um, and so they have to claim that, uh, society is oppressive and that they're therefore being heroic by standing up to all of this stuff. And um, I just kind of wish people could just look around at this country and at our society and say, you know, these things are, are problems. They're not a crisis. 
you know, it's not Jim Crow 2.0. It's not Jim Crow on steroids, but maybe we should have, you know, more voting centers in this neighborhood or whatever. But this need to paint things in these, these stark, um, terrifying terms, I think is one of the reasons why our politics are so unbelievably ugly is you have, you have people who want to live in exciting times. You know, they want to live in helter skelter, right? They want living with greater drama than their actual lives can provide. And so they make up all sorts of crises and drama that are on that, that are deleterious to other people's peace of mind. Um, anyway, I, I know I'm rambling. Oh, so I know most people come here to this podcast for my theater reviews. Um, so I don't want to disappoint anybody. When we were in London, our flight was canceled. So we had an extra day and my daughter, and my wife really wanted to go to the theater. I like going to the theater too, you know, last minute theater tickets on a Saturday at the end of July in London, it's kind of, it's, it's not exactly a buyer's market, right? I mean, a lot of, a lot of shows were sold out. The ones that weren't sold out, it was hard to find, you know, three seats together, never mind three good seats together and never mind find one in a, in a play that you wanted to actually, or a musical that you actually wanted to see. And um, I did find something that seemed interesting in part because we had already been talking about this guy, you know, Ignatz Samwise. I think I've talked about him on here before. The germ theory of infection. Okay, so yeah, yeah. so we had been talking about this guy Samwise, uh, Ignatz Samwise, um, earlier in the trip, and then I saw that there was a play about him, and starring Mark Rylance. If you don't know who he is, he's a great actor. I like him. Um, he was the KGB spy that Tom Hanks kind of represented in. Uh, Bridge of Spies. Um, anyway, he plays the Samwise guy, and Samwise, he's—I've seen him. I've seen it said that he sort of was the guy who discovered the germ theory of infection, which I always have a bit of a problem with because it feels to me like a tradition of cleanliness had emerged earlier, or whatever. But it kind of got forgotten, at least. And it's a terrifying, terrible story about how these um, at the universe at the, at the biggest hospital in Vienna, which I think was the biggest hospital in the world, the best hospital in the world at the time. It was at the beginning of this sort of revolution in science where uh, autopsies were seen as more and more important. And they were trying to do, um, you know, try to get the root causes of where disease comes from by actually studying dead bodies. And so these, doctors um, would, you know, be sticking their hands inside of dead bodies um, in not exactly air conditioned, or, you know, refrigerated situations or conditions. Um, and then they would go about doing their medicine and including these obstetricians who were not washing their hands after working at the, doing autopsies and then delivering babies. And you can just imagine how easy it was to spread infection. And he's the Samwise guy is the guy who 
was a major pioneer in questioning this and pushing people, pushing doctors to disinfect their hands, basically just to wash their hands with chlorine or whatever. And, um, and also wash bed sheets and all these kinds of things. It's one of these really famous uh, case studies in how difficult it is to change scientific paradigms. He was vilified for this. Doctors didn't believe it. They thought it was crazy. Um, and they, and you know, you, I think it was Megan McArdle did a really good conversation about this with Russ Roberts a while back on econ talk. You know, part of it was that they didn't want part of the psychological phenomenon was that these doctors didn't want to entertain the notion that they've been killing people um, and that they've been wrong about so much. Part of it was just sort of, we've been doing things a certain way and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Part of it was, you know, just not believing that something you can't see would cause these infections. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons. Anyway, he, Samuel Weiss's life ended badly. And I remember part of the point that Megan and, and Russ were making about it is that one of the, it's sort of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you kind of got to be a bit of a jerk, uh, you know, a stubborn kind of jerk to question the established norms and push for reforms when nobody wants you, wants them. Um, you got to have to be a little abrasive, right? You need one of those weird incongruous personalities. The problem is, is the people with those kinds of personalities are the least persuasive to change people's minds. And so Samwise, his, he was a, he was a jerk, and his life ended badly in a sanitarium and, um, and all that. But anyway, I was pretty reluctant uh, to see this play. The tickets were very expensive. This trip to Europe was very expensive. Anyway, but I was like, okay, we want to do this. Family wants to do this. So we go to the theater. And I just want to be really clear. The, the act, some of the acting was really good. Mark Lawrence is, is fun to watch. It kind of felt rushed in the sense that wasn't clear to me that everybody remembered their lines and that sometimes people were just sort of winging it for their lines and repeating things. Um, the running time was supposed to be two hours. It ran way long and the theater was hot and not air conditioned. And the story is just incredibly depressing, right? It's mothers not wanting to go into the doctor's ward at the hospital because they hear that, Babies and mothers die there because they do, they get infections. It's everyone feeling guilty. It's lots of stuff about autopsies. There's really no kind of like lighthearted subplot kind of thing. They tried and failed, I thought. And it's just depressing. And at times it's like super didactic with them sort of just speaking, you know, almost declaring these are the lessons you should take from this kind of thing. And it was just a miserable experience. So my wife liked it, you know, okay. Um, my daughter was on my side about it. The lady I was sitting next to at the theater didn't like it. It just, it's not a great topic for a two and a half hour long play um, because you know where it's going. It's kind of gross what they're talking about. And their efforts to sort of gild the lily with this sort of, it's not a Greek chorus, but like this weird dancing thing where ballet dancers would represent death or chaos or anger. It was just, it felt very much like one of these 1930s socialist 
uh, kind of plays from the old, you know, WPA or like the kind of play that Barton Fink was writing in Barton Fink, where we are going to teach you about serious things here and truly, truly did not enjoy myself. So I figured I would, I would, I would tell you. Now I'm sure I'm going to hear from someone who says they love the play and that's fine. I'm not a big theater guy. I'm not an expert in theater. Um, I do enjoy going, um, but um, man, it was just not since long day's journey into night. Have I been to such a depressing play? I guess we should talk about the indictment stuff. I've already, I did a good, I thought I had a good discussion with Sarah Isger about the indictments. And then we talked about it on the dispatch podcast as well. So I'm not going to dwell on it too much. Um, I do. I went on a bit of a tirade with Sarah in that it bothers me enormously how many people, and I'm not going to like name names or all that kind of stuff, but like the number of people who were kind of lukewarm and um, sort of meh about the January 6th impeachment who are now saying, well, obviously we should have impeached him for it and convicted him back then, but this doesn't belong in a court of law. There was a lot of people saying, you know, these are questions for a court of law, not for impeachment. And, um, and I think this is just another, it's not even another example. It's just another reminder of how much our elites are screwing up the country. And I'm not saying this is a populist thing because I'm not a populist. I just mean that the people who are supposed to have we're supposed to be the trustees. We've talked about it a bunch before the differences between representative leadership and trustee leadership. I'm big into the trustee model, right? The small R Republican model, which says that sure leaders can be elected, but that doesn't make them sort of just simply vessels for whatever the voters want. Um, They should have uh, the voters interests in mind, but they should have a, an idea about what is best for the long-term interests of the country as well. And, and not just the country of the Republican party, if they're Republicans of the democratic party, if they're Democrats of the Senate, if they're senators of the house, if they're house members, people should be in their institutions and be zealous guardians of the, the interests of the country. But one of the ways that they can be the best protectors of the interests of the country is by being, protectors of the interests of the institutions they are serving in. People get mad at me for defending Mitch McConnell. I remain mostly a McConnell defender in part, just because I think he's one of the uh, only grownups in the, in the government and who's never had any desire to run for president. He just wanted to be Senate majority leader and he wanted to run the Senate and he's an institutionalist. But um, all that said, I just think he blew it with the impeachment stuff. He should have followed through with the convictions he expressed in his floor speech about the impeachment. He should have said he should have voted to convict and he should have whipped the Senate Republicans or at least enough of them to vote to convict. And instead he had this idea, which I thought was very short-sighted, that the Democrats would take care of all these problems for them, that, um, um, and I, I believe he's one of the guys who said court of law, you know, blah, 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 blah. 
And if he had been impeached and convicted and barred from holding public office again, we'd have a primary Republican primary where they're talking about actual issues. And yes, they would suck up more to Trump than I would like, but they'd be looking for Trump's endorsement. Um, not for, not to peel away Trump voters from Trump. Anyway, I, I just find that this whole debate about these indictments, these latest indictments, and I'm still trying to get to the bottom. I'm, you know, I'm wrapping up this vacation and I haven't, I haven't read the whole thing yet. I find this, the absolute certainty from people that it's impossible to prove Trump's state of mind. Um, I'm more skeptical of that than, than some people are. I can make a case to a jury. Um, I'm not saying I'd be a great trial lawyer or anything like that, but I just like, if you imagine yourself, how you would do these kinds of things, I, I could see making a case to a jury that a jury would not waste a lot of time trying to put Trump on the couch and find the, the true proof in his head. And I could see him getting convicted. Now, whether that goes, as I talked about with Sarah, whether that goes to appeal or not, and what that means, you know, when it goes to appeal for our politics, particularly if Trump's president is really, really complicated and hard to game out. But like, we shouldn't be at this point. It was so transparently obvious that he should be convicted. Um, I think it was obvious he should have been convicted after the first impeachment. But, um, but I also thought it was obvious that both impeachment trials should have been done like real trials. Neither party wanted to do that. They didn't want to bring in real witnesses. They didn't want to go through, you know, real evidence. Um, we got the whole pattern backwards where the January 6th committee was basically um, doing the investigation after the impeachment had already been concluded when, like, you're normally supposed to have, in, you know, hearings in support of uh, an impeachment trial in the beginning, sort of like grand jury kind of thing. And nobody, nobody wanted to do it seriously. Nobody wanted to do it the right way. And it's now proven to me, at least, that I think impeachments are sort of, removal is basically off the table in American politics. You get these people who say, you know, it drives me absolutely batty. You know, it's not a, this is not a courtroom. This is not a criminal trial. This is just about impeachment. It's a political trial. But you get, you know, all the legal pundits who say that once sort of under their breath, and then they start talking as if it's a criminal trial. And they talk about the rule of law and, and evidence and standards of evidence and New York Times v. Sullivan and all these kinds of things for an impeachment trial where none of that stuff matters. And just, people are just too terrified to, to vote to convict and remove. And I think that that's a shame because that means there is really no check on lawlessness in the in the in the executive branch in any real kind of way, and it makes impeachments basically a dead letter or a pseudo event kind of thing. And so I kind of really am coming around the idea that we need something like a vote of no confidence kind of thing. We have to do something that brings back this the the proper function of checks and balances and all that um, in regard to this kind of thing. At the same time, I'm. I, I wrote about this for my LA Times column. I, I'm increasingly of the mind that it is entirely possible that voters, you know, who are telling pollsters that they support Trump no matter what and, you know, and screw the weaponized Justice Department and screw the media, you know, Trump's number one, that when it comes to, you know, the Iowa caucuses or the New Hampshire primary, um, 
They're just sort of like, eh, enough of this. And they don't vote for Trump. Now, obviously, a lot of people will vote for Trump, but I, I could I could see Trump having actually a kind of Howard Dean. And I think that one of the things that bothers a lot of people in my world, lawyers, pundits, political analysts, big donors, you know, you can go down a list of people who are like really invested in politics is they just really kind of hate the idea that there's no mechanism. There's nothing the party can do, the institutions can do donors can do. There's no story or op-ed that you could write that is going to get Trump out of the way. It's just going to come down to letting the voters decide. And now I'm someone who's pretty adamant that that primaries are stupid and that we shouldn't be um, letting voters decide who nominees for parties are in the first place. But that's the system that we have. And that's, you know, that's democracy for you is like, that's how it's going to work. And so there's this real sense of, you know, will this next thing be the thing? Will this thing be the silver bullet? Will that thing be the silver bullet? And I think it is a kind of, arrogance is the wrong word, but it's a kind of thinking that happens in a very specific kind of bubble where, you know, you're still working on this assumption that there are levers to pull to solve some political problems when really you just got to sort of like General Kutuzov in War and Peace, who just says time and patience is the answer. Sometimes you just got to let this stuff play out. I find it frustrating, but, um, but so what it's my frustration does not matter. And, uh, but you know, just as a wrong, raw cephalogical punditry, cephalogical means the study of elections comes from the ancient Greece where they would vote with stones. Ceph means stone. So it's the study of like vote casting. In the last 50 years, I don't think anybody has won both the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. There is a pretty well-established record of contrarianism among those voters. And New Hampshire doesn't like to ratify what Iowa is going to do. And Iowa doesn't like to ratify what it thinks New Hampshire is going to do. And so it's, if Trump wins in Iowa, I would suspect that he doesn't win in New Hampshire. If if he doesn't win in either, I think the whole thing starts to unravel really, really quickly uh, because one of the things that Trump has going for him is the widespread belief that like he's inevitable, he's unstoppable. There are people who think he's the best candidate to beat Biden, which I think is nonsense. If he shows real vulnerability because um, voters just sort of change their mind, you could see, I mean, I'm not sure it would be DeSantis. I mean, I might still win some of my bet about how, it's not going to be DeSantis, Trump, or Biden in the general election. But I, 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 the thing is, is just we won't know until votes are cast. It's certainly, you know, these indictments aren't weakening Trump politically. It's been very good for Trump. Um, that is not an argument for or against the indictments per se, except for maybe the Bragg one, which I think was just garbage. But it's because uh, it, like, if he committed crimes, he should be indicted and charged with them, you know, and, and prosecuted for them. And I think he committed crimes. Um, I think that the January 6th stuff is going to be harder to prove than um, the Mar-a-Lago stuff uh, because of the the documents, the mishandling document stuff. I've seen no argument, no plausible hypothetical that makes a case that Trump is actually innocent of the charges, right? I mean, his defenders don't make those kinds of claims. They either make up out of whole cloth, you know, irrelevant legal arguments 
but they don't deny the underlying facts or they just say, who cares? But, um, but Trump's guilty of that stuff as far as I'm concerned. Yes, yes, yes. If I, you know, we're supposed to say alleged and all that kind of stuff, but I think the, I think those cases are open and shut. Um, but they also could take a very long time. Um, I saw this thing. I haven't read up on it much about, uh, Gavin Newsom debating DeSantis, I think, and you know, I guess I guess Hannity's going to be the moderator. Um, so I don't know if this is a thing on a show or or something more formal, but I think it's a great idea for DeSantis, and I think it's a great idea for Newsom. But I would not be surprised if Newsom win. I think DeSantis has better facts about you know like whose state's model is better, you know, Florida versus California kind of thing. I'm, I'm on team DeSantis on the facts of those kinds of things um, and the arguments, but it would not surprise me if Newsom wins the actual debate on sort of style because um, he's been more impressive to me lately than I thought. I used to just think he had really important hair, but uh, he did. I saw some of that stuff that he did with Hannity a while back and it was good. I mean, I just mean this there's politically astute and well, well executed coming around to the idea that he's a better politician than, than I thought he was. And I'm also coming around the view that DeSantis is a worse, worse politician than I thought he was. Um, so I, I think it could be interesting. I think it is not good for Biden to have a substantive debate between two governors who are a generation, at least a generation younger than Biden. And I don't think it's good for Trump, right? It's like, but it's a, it's a good idea for DeSantis and for Newsom and for the country. I, I would like to see a lot more of that kind of stuff. On the Hunter Biden stuff, I don't have much new to add since the last time we talked about this. It's every day. It's obvious what a sleazeball Hunter is. I think it is it is clearly obvious to me that Joe Biden has lied or misled people about his knowledge of and involvement in Hunter's doings. And I think... I don't think that's even like a contestable point at this point because the White House's own uh, talking points have shifted. They've moved the goalposts because they have to take account of the fact that the stuff that Biden used to say about having no knowledge is now just not tenable on the facts, at least. Um, they have to think it's not tenable because they're changing their story. I would still be very surprised if Biden straight up took a bribe, like, just took like a bunch of cash. It does seem entirely plausible to me that Hunter was selling the, what do they call it? The illusion of access. Um, you know, that Hunter was pretending that his dad was all read in on this stuff and was getting his back and that Biden in fact, and his dad in fact wasn't. It is possible that Joe knew that Hunter was doing this and made it easier for Hunter to spin and lie. But if in fact there was actual money, you know, actual fee for service bribe to Joe Biden when he was vice president, then he has to resign from office, you know, immediately. And he needs to, or he needs to be impeached. I just don't see how that's avoidable um, in any way, but we're a long way from that being proven. Um, I think that the, the way the Republicans talk about this stuff is, not great. I mean, it depends on the Republican, but I, this guy, what's his name? Comer, you know, he reads way too much of his stage direction and gets way out ahead of things all the time, but it's serious. 
and it's real. And I think it's breaking through in way. And again, I think it's because you can tell something is breaking through when the white house has to deal with something it clearly doesn't want to deal with, like addressing the existence of, you know, this granddaughter, the white house would have liked to have not had to do that, but it did it. It's sort of like when Obama ultimately had to address his birth certificate, you know, um, you have to, uh, when the, when the white house deals with the stuff that it doesn't want to deal with, it's a sign that they see it's breaking through somewhere to one extent or another. All right. I, I'm going to wrap this one up early. I apologize if this was uh contentless in your eyes. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm a little under the weather. It's up very late last night and I still got to write a G file and I'm sopping wet because I got caught in a rainstorm and I was behind the schedule on this thing. So, um, next week we're gonna get back to normal. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, we finally got our power and our telephone working at our internet working at the house. Um, Oh, I, you know, I keep getting asked about it. I don't have great answers for people about Zoe and Pippa. For those of you who don't know, or, and I'm sorry, if you don't care, you can turn off now. So our, while we were gone in Europe, our dogs got started getting really growly with each other. Um, I want to be really clear. I blame Pippa almost entirely. Pippa, there's this thing that people call spaniel rage. I think she's getting it from time to time, but she has gotten, she gets much more territorial about her humans and her spaces than she used to. She gets growly with Zoe about the bed. She gets growly when Pippa is sort of in the chair with me and Zoe comes in. Pippa will get growly sometimes, particularly when Jess is out of town. And so like, I'm the only human resource. And apparently it happened when they were staying at our dog walker friend, uh, Kirsten's house. They got really territorial about Kirsten and Pippa started getting all growly with Zoe. And normally when this has been happening in the last year or so, Zoe just sort of turns the other cheek and shrugs and walks away. But, um, she wouldn't back down and she got growly back. And so the basic problem is that Pippa is writing checks her ass can't cash. And Zoe could really hurt Pippa if Pippa keeps getting up in Zoe's grill. We don't know what to do about it. We got some nice notes from people who were offered some suggestions. It didn't help that I had to leave town right after we got back from Europe. Um, the reports from home are that it's not happening right now. So that's good. And there are a bunch of people who are concerned because I, we took the dogs to the vet. We're, we're, we're going with the new vet because we just got sick of um, the cost and the, the hassle of Friendship Animal Hospital, which has some good people in it. We always liked the specific vet that we dealt with there, but um, it was getting harder to get an appointment and it was just, it's always packed and it's expensive as hell. And, um, and so we thought it's time to just try a new vet. So we took them in just sort of to, for their initial checkups and things are looking okay. Um, both of them seem healthy, except Zoe may need to have some teeth, more teeth pulled because she's got some gum stuff going on, which I, I just hate the idea of doing. Um, I like Zoe's smile, but other than that, you know, we're just taking it one day at a time with the girls. And if any of you have some sort of uh, constructive insight about this, because I've heard from people, these are not the first two dogs to start getting 
testing with each other later in life, but it's, you know, it's worrisome and it makes it difficult to find people to like Kirsten couldn't have both of them at the same time in part because she's walking other dogs and she's boarding other dogs and she can't leave them alone if she thinks that they're going to get into a fight. And so we had to separate them. And fortunately we had someone who was house sitting for us who could take Zoe, but um, it makes it difficult for us to contemplate, you know, travel and um, at least travel without the dogs. Um, so any advice would be welcome. So with that, I'm going to say farewell. So long. Alvita's in. Adieu.